Evan, let's go ahead and uh, open up with another word of prayer. Father God, we thank you. Lord, there's not enough words we could say to resound our thankfulness to you. And we're going to celebrate today of all days, Lord, the risen Savior. The one who has died and, and rose again, therefore defeating death, hell, and the grave. So, Father, we are thankful. And we pray that, that through the witness of Scripture and the, the testimony of your word, that we will understand that those of us who may not believe the gospel, and yet we were dragged here by a family member because it's Easter, we pray, Lord, that you would open those eyes. We give spiritual sight to those who cannot spiritually see God. That you would save sinners, which you have been doing since before um, the cross, even and after the cross specifically. Father, we pray we would be about your work and about celebrating the right things this Easter. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As you're turning to John chapter 20, let me remind you that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ have been the most cataclysmic events in human history. No other single event in the quarters of history have done more to fascinate or stump the minds of people from every generation. You see, there was a man born under seemingly uncertain circumstances, lived a somewhat meager life, owned no land or animals, and yet claimed to own the cattle on all the hills. He owned no home or bed, yet slept worry-free in the middle of the boat, in the middle of a storm. He owned no money or cash, and yet paid the taxes he owed and that of his friends. This 33-year-old man said some things which caused either the human heart to grow more callous at the judgment he said was coming or caused the human heart to leap with unexplainable joy at the good news that he preached. These two reactions would come to symbolize all of humanity into two groups. You see, this first group, the ones who would despise this man and his teaching are modeled for us in the scriptures. You see, they took this man flogged him until his skin became as strips of linen hanging from him. And you can see his bones. Ripped the beard out of his face, mocked him, ridiculed him, traded his life for the life of a thug named Barabbas. And then they laid on him a wooden beam across his back and made this man carry it to the firing squad who would fire the nails between his hands and his feet. Only instead of the reverberating report from a gunshot, the firing squad shot that were heard reverberating screams of agony. There on the cross, this man would hang between heaven and earth between two common criminals until he breathed his last, saying these words, It is finished. The men who were still hiding in the darkness of their own hearts began to worry because they had evening plans, and so they asked the Romans to hurry this thing up. The soldiers approached the three hanging there on their crosses. The ones on the outer edge still showed signs of life. And so they broke their legs, thereby speeding up this capital punishment. But as these Romans approached the man in the middle, they concluded by looking at him, saying that he is already dead. However, for safe measure, they took their Roman spear and shoved it into the side. And blood and water flowed down. And this is the first group of people. The second group. The ones whose hearts leaped within them with rejoicing at the good news this man preached are the ones who followed this man for three years of their lives. They had devoted everything they had 
to this one person, this one man. They had given up family businesses, education plans, families, dreams, and aspirations. They had literally given everything because what they heard this man say and what they saw this man do, they believed everything was changing. Something new is aloof here. That is, until they saw this man die. You see, the disciples were there. They took him off the cross. They wrapped his body with spices and clothes and no doubt getting his very blood on their hands and they wept bitterly. They wept like they had never wept before in their lives. Because everything that had seemingly been believing in these last three years were nothing because there this man lay dead, lifeless, not moving, not breathing. Their eyes were not playing tricks on them. He was dead. They laid him in another man's tomb and went away with their heads hung low. This is where we ended Friday night's service. And my charge to you then was to go home, to contemplate these things. So I wonder, Mom, Dad, have you reflected on this? Have you felt with the disciples the hopelessness that they must have felt? Have you wept at the brokenness in your own life and the world around you? And yet, did you remember all the promises that this man made of himself that he was going to die and yet rise again? You see, these disciples are lost, confused, undone by what they've just witnessed. Everything is seemingly utterly hopeless. That is until John chapter 20. This morning I want to give you three testimonies to the fact that this man, this Jesus Christ, actually rose from the dead. He came back to life. And I simply want to give you three reasons why he had to do this. So let's go. John chapter 20. Look at verse 1 with me. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. and They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Here we have the apostle John entering into the tomb where they had just two days previously laid the Savior of the world. And it says he he went in and he saw and believed. So the question for us is, believed what? That that Jesus was gone? No. See, what John believed was that this Jesus, who they had two days previously lain in this borrowed tomb, actually resurrected from the dead. You see, John was the first in all the world to believe that Christ was alive again. What was it that John saw, 
that made him believe. You see, something in the tomb there, in the emptiness of the tomb, calls in him a heart uh, of newness, a heart to believe that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. Notice Mary's reaction. She gets there, sees the tomb empty, and runs to tell the disciples. And what does she say? They, somebody, somewhere has taken Christ. They've taken his body. We don't know where they've put him. But what does John say? He believes. So what made him believe? You see, first of all, the burial practice of these Jews were distinctive. The Egyptians, you see, embalmed their dead. And in Roman and Greek cultures, corpses were often cremated. In Palestine, neither of these things were done. Rather, the dead were wrapped in linen swaddling cloths, contained dry spices, and were placed on their backs without coffins and tombs. Moreover, they were not completely wrapped. You see, the dead were wrapped, but the face, the neck, and the upper part of the shoulders were left bare. Typically, these corpses were, were wrapped with their arms folded cross-like across their torso, and the head was wrapped separately with a cloth twirled about it like a turban. You see, this is why in Luke chapter 7, verse 15, when Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain as he was being carried to the young tomb, do you remember what happened? The young man sat up and began speaking to those there. He was speaking because the grave cloths did not cover his face. And we see similar evidence of this, of this being the case in Lazarus and John eleven forty four. And this also explains here John's reaction in the Lord's temple, or in the Lord's tomb. You see, John got to the tomb first, but John did not go in first. He got there. And as this was his caution, he began to become reflective. He simply peers inside. Look at what it says there in verse 5. He looked in at the strips of linen lying there. You see, this word for looked or saw suggests simply seeing. He's just seeing as you and I simply see. John saw the grave clothes in a very cursory manner. And when Peter came in, Peter does what Peter does, which is he barged right in, enters the tomb, sees the the strips of linen lying there, right? This seeing word in the Greek is different than what John sees. You see, this is the word theoro, from which we get the English word theater. You see, Peter was taking a long, careful look at what he saw in the empty tomb. He saw the grave wrappings, the turban lying just as they had been wrapped on Jesus. You see, the appropriate space was between. It was set up correctly. But there was no body. There was no Jesus. Then John enters the tomb. And it says he saw. And this word is a different seed entirely. You see, this is a seeing of with understanding, which leads to believing. You see, famous uh, uh, Pastor John Stott says the body was vaporized. Simply removed from existence, yet the clothing was still there. John now understood what had happened. I imagine he said something like, Peter, don't you get it? Don't you see? No one's taken his body. It's gone right through the clothes. Jesus is risen. Peter, do you understand what this means? He's alive. He's alive. Peter, the only reason the stone is gone is so that we could see. Praise God, let's go home. Tell the brothers. Yes, friends, Jesus is alive. To which we should all say amen. British congregational minister who had long been a distinguished person in in the Christian world 
thought himself a Christian, well on his way in life one day when writing an Easter sermon said this. He said, the thought of the risen Lord broke in upon me as it had never done before. Christ is alive, I said to myself. Alive. And then I paused. Alive. And then I paused again. Alive. Can that really be true? Living as real as I am. I got up and I walked about repeating, Christ is living, Christ is living. And to me, it was a new discovery. I thought that all along I had believed it. But not until that moment did I feel sure about it. I then said, my people shall know this truth. I shall preach about it again and again until they believe it as I do now. This began the custom of singing uh, in his church every morning, every Sunday morning in Easter hymn. You see, Jesus is alive. I have nothing else for you this morning to, to simply lay on you that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You see, this testimony, this scripture, John 1 through 8, sets before us and commands us to believe as John believed. Oh, if we could attain that height, if we simply believe this, our lives would be changed. You see, because a living Christ is an all-powerful Christ. A living Christ is a, a present Christ. A living Christ is a Christ who gives us now what we need in this life. A living Christ is a Christ who gives us life in eternity. A living Christ is a Christ who gives us victory. That's testimony number one. Let's look at Mary now. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Here we have the apostles believe that they had not seen Jesus alive again. They hadn't seen him. They simply seen the remains of the fact that he's gone. Mary Magdalene was the first to have the joy of seeing Christ actually risen. You see, probably when Peter and John sprinted to the tomb, they left poor Mary Magdalene, who had already been running back to inform them, out of breath and restless, on her way back. And she was left in the dust. And when Peter and John left the tomb, believing they either overlooked Mary on her way back to the tomb or departed by another way, whatever the case, Mary was there shortly afterwards, standing outside the tomb, alone, uninformed, and weeping. But wait, more accurately than simply weeping, she was wailing, sobbing, broken. You see, the word used here in verse 11 is the same used to describe the mourners at Lazarus' grave. She was in deep mourning. This was a wail. But only the wail of, of a lost loved one could produce. And it came from the depths of her broken heart. Jesus, you see, had cast out seven devils from Mary. She had sinned much. And she had been forgiven much. She loved Jesus much. And so her heart was an indescribable anguish. And on top of the horror of his death came this last indignity. They had taken his body and they moved it. No doubt to make further sport of his humiliation. You see, Mary was totally unprepared for what would happen in the next few seconds. Look at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and they do not know where they have laid him. Having, had, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You see, Mary, broken, alone, looks into the tomb. And only now she doesn't see an empty tomb. She sees a tomb with two angels there sitting, one on each side of where the body would have been. And she hears a voice behind her and says, why are you weeping? Her not knowing that it was Jesus and it was Jesus, the risen Savior of the world. Says, who are you looking for? Notice her response. She said, they've taken away my Lord. Remember, this is Mary Magdalene who thinks Jesus is actually dead, still referring to him as Lord of her life. There's something there. She goes on and says, I will take him away. Little old me, I just tell me where he is. I will get his body and bring it back. And Jesus simply says to her, her name, Mary. And with this, her eyes became open. Listen. What Jesus did for Mary outside the cross, Jesus can do for you today. You see, the salvation of individuals is always personal. You are not saved because your mom or your dad were a Christian. Your children will not be saved because you are a Christian. They can only be saved. We can only be saved. You can only be saved by an individual call of Christ and an accurate response of your heart of repentance and submission to the risen Savior. That's what we see here. We see Jesus simply say her name and she apparently begins to throw her arms around this Jesus. But Jesus cautioned her to not cling to him. He wanted her to realize there's a new relationship going on here. A new relationship in the process of being established. The comfort that awaited Mary and her friends was far more substantial than a hug could ever give. And listen, that same relationship that he was saying, don't cling to me because there's something greater coming, is the same relationship that is offered to you and I. It's very significant here that as with the other three Gospels, Christ first appears to the woman, Mary Magdalene, not to an apostle, not to the great in society or the great in the church, but to a particular woman. You see, Christ first to one who in the culture of the time was oppressed, a woman who have been known to have great sins. Listen, what a great comfort it is to you and I that Christ always comes first to the poor in spirit. So this isn't Matthew 5 that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, that truth is true today. How must Mary have felt at this moment? She had been on an emo- emotional roller coaster for days, and now she was delirious. At the top. Off she went on another cross-country run to the disciples. It must have been very satisfying to say to her disciples, Peter, John, listen, guys, I have something to tell you. I've actually seen Jesus. He's alive. But look at verse 24. 
So we have the witness of John who simply sees and believes. And we have the witness of Mary who sees actually Jesus and believes and tells others. But then we have Thomas. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Here's this is important because John is directly writing to you and I today. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus popped in on the other disciples, and there they all saw and believed. And so Thomas is left out in the dark in this believing thing. As a matter of fact, he's adamantly opposed to it. He said, I'll never believe it. Some of you in this room today have said that. I'll never believe that Christian stuff. said, unless I see the wounds in his side and the wounds in his hands and his feet, I'll never believe this. And what happens? Jesus lovingly, tenderly shows up and says, go ahead. Put your fingers into my nail wounds. Put your hand into the side where the spear ripped into my body. You see, in this moment, God was providing, Jesus was providing to Thomas a remedy You see, the Lord gave Thomas time to think about the situation, eight days to be exact, and Thomas did just that. He's surrounded by these brothers who keep saying, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. He's listening to the band sing. And I wonder, did he become convinced of the resurrection before Christ ever appeared to him? Or was he adamantly full-fisted and full-stop against believing? You see, Thomas may have been slow to believe, but he was not slow to grasp the implications of Christ's resurrection. Because Jesus shows up and he says, put your fingers here. And in nowhere in all of scripture does it say that Thomas ever did do that. He knew the implication of the Christ's resurrection. He says Jesus was not only his Lord, but his God. You see, this evidence for Thomas was palpable, substantive, and clear. Thomas's faith rested on a solid rock. What about us? Where does our evidence lie? Because the evidence is just as, just as palpable, just as clear to us today. To believe, to see Jesus. And so we have these three testimonies. The testimony of John who saw the empty space and believed. And we have Mary who saw the risen Christ and believed. And then we have Thomas who said he would never believe and seen unless he was able to feel with his own fingers the nail prints in his hands. He said he wouldn't believe and yet he believed without doing any of those. What about you? Sir, ma'am, 
far from Christ, say, I would never believe it. Listen, Christ today is calling your name to believe this gospel, that Christ died for you so that you wouldn't have to. On Friday night, we, we answered and examined the question, why did Jesus die? And the rest of the time this morning, I want us to examine the question, why did Jesus rise? You see, I skipped over a verse. Look back at verse 9. This is the story of John. Looks in, sees, believes. Verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. See, John is here saying that like, this was not just uh, a happenstance, but that Jesus Christ actually needed to rise from the dead. And so my question is, why did Jesus need to rise from the dead? Three reasons, and then we'll be done. Number one, Jesus needed to rise from the dead to prove God's word was true. You see, through his prophets, God had long promised to send his people, this anointed one, this Messiah, heir to David's throne and rallying hope of Israel. You see, Jesus was first mentioned in Genesis 3.15, where, Jesus, where God is putting the curse on mankind. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This was the first glimmer of hope. This is the first promise of God that there would come a redemption. There would come a reckoning, a, a rightening of all the wrongs in all of societies of all time. The things would be made right. And so Jesus needed to die. And rise again to prove that God's word is true. Genesis 12, 2, this promise is carried along to Abraham. Where God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Listen, how are we today uh, inside of this covenant promise of Abraham? Listen, you and I are inside this covenant promise to Abraham that's been carried throughout time to us. Because Jesus is the blessing to all nations. And it's essential that messianic promise that there be an eternal reign, not just a temporary reign. We have presidents that last four years. We don't really use words like reign anymore. But yet they did. The, the people the scriptures did. They knew what a reign was. A king who would reign his entire life, some 20, some 40, some 60 plus years, always in charge. But they were still looking for something even greater, one, a reign without end, someone who would be in charge uh, for all time, never to be usurped, never to be replaced. So what do you do when Jesus dies? He's promised to be this eternal king. He's lying there dead in the grave. You see, Jesus had to rise from the dead to prove that God's word is true. Not only that, this promise had been promised to David that there would be uh, a continual line, one generation after another, but one great heir was coming to who would reign without end. 2 Samuel 7, 12 says this, when your days are fulfilled, this is God talking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house from my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, God's king would be the one to fulfill the promise of God's 
word. Jesus was and is that king. Therefore, in order to reign eternally, he rose from the dead to prove that God's word is true. Not even the last enemy, the enemy of death, could keep him from it. Strong as the power of death may seem, it was and is no match for God. Secondly, Jesus rose from the dead to prove that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for you and I. You see, the resurrection confirmed that Jesus' death on the cross actually worked. It counted. It meant something. It did something. It was effective. You see, when Jesus said, it is finished, what is the it that is finished? Had Jesus stayed dead, what confidence would we have that his sacrifice worked? That it was sufficient for you and I and for all who would believe in Christ? What firm hope would we have that he indeed was not only innocent of his own sin, but that his death would count for us in our place? You see, Paul writes in Romans 4, 25, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, that's Hebrews. Paul writes in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, the resurrection, Jesus actually rising from the dead, shows that his work was effective, not only in covering our sins with his death, but in rising to be our righteousness, our justification before a holy God. Hebrews kind of explains this in depth in chapter 10. He said the author of Hebrews, he's trying to convince a, a people who had grown up under Jewish custom and Jewish law uh, what that was all pointing towards. You see, in the Jewish world, they would every year they would bring a sacrifice before the Holy of Holies in the temple, and there they would sacrifice that animal. Why would they do that? We think, you see, we're Americans today. We think that seems barbaric, crazy. How can the blood of a goat suffice and appease an angry God, we ask? And the, Hebrew, and the author of Hebrews deals with this question. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the, even the Bible realizes that offering uh, the blood of a goat could not wash away the sins of humanity. Here's what he says. Otherwise... They would have not ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have been conscious of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. You see, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The author of Hebrews goes on to interpret. He says, When he said that, you have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices or burnt offerings or sin offerings. He added, Behold, I come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. You see, Jesus dying on the cross was to stop all sacrifices for sin. No longer the sacrifice need to be made. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is vastly important for you and I to grasp this morning. Because in Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection, what he proves is that Jesus dying on the cross was enough for all of your brokenness. All of your sin, every area of life you have failed, you have stumbled, you've lied, you've cussed, you've smoked, you've drank, whatever it is, that Jesus' death was enough for that. Listen, this is vastly important. When did Jesus die? In the past or in the future? In the past, 2,000 years ago. What that means for us today is that Jesus, when Jesus died for our sins, all of our sins were what? Future sins. Therefore, Christ dying in uh, 2,000 years ago covered for all times all sins of all people who would ever believe in his name. Therefore, there is no need for us to continue to sacrifice or to try to earn our right standing with God. Most of the world operates on a trajectory that says, if at the end of my life, all of my good outweighs all of my bad, then me and God are cool. Every other religion in the world operates under this kind of mentality. My goodness outweighs my badness, then me and God are cool. Then the Christianity, the essence of Christianity is that there is no amount of goodness that you could ever do to outweigh your bads. I remember telling a teenager this once in the youth group a couple years back. I was pressing into him and I said, there's nothing you can do. He's like, but, but Pastor, you know, I, you know, I've slept outside of marriage, you know, slept with a woman outside of marriage, I've done all these things, I gotta make it right. And I said, You can't. I can't. You can't. He said, well, well, then how can we be saved? What can we do? How do we make this right? And I said, Brother, Jesus did it for us. And Jesus rising from the dead proves that his sacrifice was sufficient for us. Lastly, Jesus rising from the dead proves that Christ is now indeed our Lord. Revelation 1.17, this is Jesus speaking. He says this, John, when I saw him, when John saw Jesus, I, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death. And Hades. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, God gave him a name that would be highly exalted. A name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus rising from the dead proves that he is right now reigning as the king of the universe. And for the Christian, we call him Lord. You see, there is no final good news if Jesus is dead. If Jesus is still dead, there's no good news. Even if our sins had been paid for, righteousness provided and applied to our account and heaven secured, but Jesus were still dead, there would be no great, great salvation in the end. Not if our Savior is that you see at the very center of the Easter story is not what Jesus saves us from, but what he saves us to, which is himself. 
You see, all of humanity is classified into two groups. Either you rejoice in the fact that God has provided a way of escape for you from your sins. You rejoice at the gospel when it's preached, when it's sung, when you've heard it for the first time. And you are gloriously committed to Christ. Or your heart will grow darker and darker. See, Paul would say that the preaching of the gospel, what I'm doing today, does two things. Number one, it either attracts those who love life or it repels those who love death. So even now, as you're hearing the gospel preached, uh, the, 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 the one of two things is happening because all of humanity is into one or two camps. Either you love the Lord or you hate him. There's no middle ground with Jesus, fellas. Amen. So we celebrate that. We celebrate the gracious God who provided Christ as our sacrifice, sacrifice for, for the, our sins. And the, if you're in here today, and you're like, man, I've never believed this. I've never accepted this. I've never said Jesus is Lord. Listen, there's hope for you today. Because as John saw and believed, so today you can see and believe. As Jesus called on Mary uh, by her name, he's calling on you today to believe in him. As Thomas declared and, and, and demanded uh, signs and wonders, so we have been given the gospel, we've been given the scripture so that we might believe. So I encourage you, believe today. Believe that it's true. Believe that Christ is risen. Let's pray. Father God, we come as sinners, come as broken people. We come carrying the weight of our sin on our shoulders, and we realize that there's nothing we can do to atone. Father, I pray that you would right now open blinded eyes. Give hearts understanding to believe the gospel, to repent of their sins, to turn away from every wicked thought in their own heart and turn to Christ. Lord, only you can open blinded eyes. We simply proclaim the good news that this is true. We proclaim as a herald comes into a, crowd, into a town with a message from the king that our sins are forgiven because they are, Father. I pray that we would believe it. Trust it. Live our lives different from the world who does not believe this. As a matter of fact, they think this kind of stuff is nonsense and foolishness. And it would be if it weren't true. But praise be to God, we have a, the scriptures that testify to your great goodness. And we believe it. So Father, we pray you would be honored and glorified and magnified in our celebration of you the risen Savior. You are not dead. You are alive. For now and forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right before